and welcome to our second podcast, streaming directly from the Southwark Playhouse Theatre, following Visible's production of Roundelay. I am Claire French, and I hope I can give you a chance to listen in on a post-show discussion that I chaired, featuring two professionals who have spent their careers focusing on sex and sexuality, but in quite diverse ways. Together, we discuss their interpretations of how the diversity of love, sex, and relationships across the ages is dealt with in this new play by Sonia Linden and directed by Anna Ledwich. Before we launch into the discussion, let me tell you a little bit more about the speakers. Ms. Jane Lees is currently the chair of the Sex Education Forum, which is a membership organisation that works together with its members and other stakeholders to achieve quality sex and relationship education, or what we might refer a little later to as SRE. Her professional career involves advocating for SRE at policy level, as well as capacity building by training teachers in appropriate SRE. She also co-authors publications with the Sex Education Forum, adding to the rich SRE teaching resources. Dr. David Lee, on the other side, is an academic who has come all the way from Manchester today. So a big thank you to David for joining us. David's background is in epidemiology, focusing on how multiple biological, psychological and social problems conspire to erode late life, quality of life and well-being. As part of this remit, his recent research as research fellow at Manchester University has drawn from sources including the English Longitudinal Study of Ageing to report on health and interpersonal dimensions to do with sexual health and well-being among older men and women in England. To give a wider sense of their backgrounds, my first question to the pair was, what is the problem with homogenized or fixed perspectives on sex and sexuality in your respective fields. If anybody saw the news uh, floating around earlier today, and we had had a hint from the Department for Education that the Secretary of State for Education was going to make, possibly going to make a momentous uh, announcement that all schools in England, uh, in England, it doesn't count for Wales, have their own arrangements as to Scotland, in all schools in England would be teaching sex and relationships education from the age of four. If that is true, I could retire. <laughs> <laughs> now, who, anybody here shocked that all schools aren't doing that. Put your hand up if you're surprised and shocked that they're not. Thank you, quite a lot. Um, that's really why the Sex Education Forum exists. Um, if it really has happened by the time we all go home, it really will be a sea change. It doesn't mean that some schools aren't teaching sex and relationships education. It just means that there isn't universal provision. And it is too complicated for schools to know what they can do. Teachers are always saying to me, what am I allowed to say? What am I allowed to tell them? What words am I allowed to use? That's a hiding to nothing. Um, the reason that this has continued for so long, I might tell you that um, when I became chair, which is nine years ago, chair of the Sex Education Forum, 
uh, my first big outing was at Central Hall, Westminster, where the, the, the then Labour uh, Secretary of St uh, um, Minister for Schools, Jim Knight, was about to announce it. In fact, he did announce it. People cried. And then, of course, there was an election and it never happened. So the last nine years, I've devoted myself to this end. So uh, have a little celebratory whatever tonight if you find out when you get home that it's true. But the, let's, the, you asked about this kind of uh, limited view. Um, that is what has stood in the way of this for all these years. And the forum is 30 years old, you, so you can see how long we've been banging on about it. And it's because there is a misunderstanding uh, generally, but particularly in government, about what sex and relationships education is about. It's a very limited and fixed one. And what always comes up, and it will come up tomorrow, if it's be, it'll be on the front of the Daily Mail, uh, we're going to be teaching four-year-olds how to have sex. <laughs> that is not what sex and relationships education starting at four is about. So it's this very limited and um, blinkered view. Four-year-olds, you teach about friendship, about caring, about their bodies. You um, introduce them to the idea that they're going to change, and it's progressive, so it's always suitable for the year, the age, and their level of understanding. Um, the other outcome of this very blinkered view and the fact that we don't have universal comprehensive sex and relationships education is that the, we have children and young people also growing up with very limited views of uh, aspects of uh, sex and relationships education and I was thinking particularly um, sex is, equ is equated with penetrative sex so sex is all about penetration. Sex doesn't have the variety um, of uh, feeling, um, exploration that was demonstrated, I think, in, in this afternoon's performance. Um, they also um, don't have the opportunity to think about how stereotyped the prevailing um, ideas about human bodies uh, particularly those presented in pornography, and that also applies to relationships. Because if we, the, uh, the education system, parents, uh, and mainstream don't provide children and young people with information about sex, then they'll go to the uh, they'll go to the internet. They'll go and look at pornography. Many of them do look at pornography, and that presents very very limited ideas about what the normal body is. Um, also relates it to relationships, uh, ideas about consent go out the window, uh, ideas about uh, the, the link between the sex and the relationship also go. And that, I'm afraid, has been uh, something which I think we've had the chairs of five um, parliamentary select committees have been saying we cannot let the situation um, prevail in schools. We have to have compulsory sex and relationships education. Um, and of course then the outcome for young people is the rise in sexting, in bullying, in the targeting of 
anybody who is non-standard, either in their appearance or in their relationships. And all of that has conspired to um, limit the, under, the general understanding of what sex and relationships is, which is why we're so pleased to be part of this, because clearly you're working against it. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Claire, for that comment. Yes. Do you remember the question? Um, <laughs> just, just remind me again. <laughs> um, what, are, what is the problem with homogenized or fixed perspectives on sex and sexuality in your field? Uh, okay, okay. Right, I'll put some perspective. Can you all hear me okay? Is that okay? Um, bit closer. A bit closer? Is that okay? Yeah? Okay. Um, I'm an academic, so I've been researching aging for over 10 years now, um, mainly from a sort of health perspective. Uh, but the last three years, we've been looking at the importance of sexuality. Now, I um, have put a very detailed sex survey into a big uh, ongoing survey, the English Longitudinal Study of Aging. And this has been following people as they transition through retirement and what are the elements which change with people's lives um, as they grow older and um, adapt to that post-retirement life. So, but what, what struck me was that intimacy and sexual health had never been asked within this, in this large survey before. So we, we were very interested in understanding the, the place of sex and sexuality. So the, the problem with these surveys tends to be that they tend to rely on tick box answers. Um, now it's good to capture information very easily, but of course it, it all then gets drilled down to averages. So how many times do people have sex per week? How, many pe how, how often do people masturbate? What sexual problems do they have? Now it's important from a public health perspective, you could argue for, um, disease and problems, but one thing we were keen to shy away from was not to normalize some um, average um, amount of sex per week. Is this working okay? Yeah. So, yeah? Okay. Um, so the, the thing which struck us was the diversity within our data. And I think it was touched upon today here, uh, the variety of um, sexual practices and um, sexual activities people um, take part in irrespective of age, but we were looking at people over the age of 50 up to their 90s. So this was the, probably the oldest survey in, in the UK in terms of sexual health and sexuality. But we also um, captured data where people wrote open text describing their sexual problems, their sexual lives, how they um, adapted to widow, um, loss of a partner, for example, and how they adapted their sexual activities in the face of long-term chronic conditions, long-term um, health problems, medications they had to take, um, but also transitions, important transitions in life, which I don't think perhaps we touched upon here, but the menopausal transition came across as a very important milestone for many women, saying their sexual lives changed, not always um, clearly in a positive way, but quite often in a negative way. And they were trying to um, have a better feeling for um, accessing good, sexual health care irrespective of their age and that's one th consensus we came from our came out from our survey is that there is a it is slight it's somewhat piecemeal around the country what sexual health services older people are able to access um, and many people reported disappointment with the first contact with their gps for example ages comments about well you know at your age don't be so surprised that you're not sexually left you've got sexually problems um, but also from older people themselves sometimes saying, well, internalizing that ageism and saying, 
well, we no longer, we, ex we accept this at our age. So there's an awful lot of diversity, but then there were many older couples who reported adaptation. They moved away from penetrative sexual intercourse. They were doing other sexual acts, other sexual um, experiences, and were very happy with that. So there's a very broad diversity which was hidden within our data, and there's all the danger, I guess, of drilling down to averages, how many times do you have sex a week, and, and trying to, you know, it, it could, you could argue that's, that's a negative message for some people, and some, you're trying to meet an unlikely, an unrealistic goal. Um, so it was quite um, varied in that sense. So. Wonderful, thank you very much. And um, I think what we're all very interested in talking about is how Roundelay either challenges or reproduces um, what you've just been discussing with us in terms of diversity. Exactly. So you can either can go first. We can have a little slip sop. Uh, yes, I, I was thinking about that. I've picked out um, a couple of examples. Um, certainly, the um, the encounters between the generations, which I thought uh, had a, a an underlying idea about that it was okay, um, considering the generations have, seem to be set against each other in society. Um, I don't think, I think it's good to portray that it doesn't have to be that way, that there can be tenderness, there can be a relationship, there can be concern uh, on, both, on both hands, that they were kind of non-exploitative uh, and tender relationships, and I thought that was lovely. And when they had sexual content, it was about non-penetrative sex. Um, and I thought there were no doubt other examples, but I thought that the whole notion of sex being more than penetration was very nicely explored in those. The other example that struck me very much was... Um, people in primary schools are very concerned about how early girls, and to some degree boys, are concerned about their body image, what they look like, whether they're fat, dieting with older pupils in the secondary age, it's about plastic surgery. Um, even plastic surgery, uh, uh, breast surgery, but also to their genitalia too, because they don't uh, seem to conform kind of images that they're seeing. Uh, and I thought uh, that that's an, it, they're extreme examples, but I also thought that the way that the body was explored in the performance was quite lovely. I've seen it twice now, and I find it absolutely goes right to the spot, um, confronting your young self and your ageing body, but also having... Um, your aging body appreciated. It's not horrible, it's not revolting. Um, it's quite, um, it's quite special, it's different. And I, I think it portrayed the whole notion of re relationships shifting and changing. It's almost as if, um, I, I fear it, I fear that one of the things the government is going to introduce is something called relationships education. Um, where's the sex in that? We've already got some sex education in schools. Relationships education, it's like everything is focused on getting the relationship. But in fact, what this beautifully 
um, presented was that relationships shift and change. You know, it is the circus of life. Um, and I think that we can do a lot more in a, 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 a properly um, distanced and uh, formalized way to help children and young people to understand that there are stages in relationships and that there are breakups and that things move on and that, that the circumstances change and that one of the skills of life is being able to negotiate that but also to see the potential in it. And I really loved, I'm just thinking of this now, but I really loved the fact that um, more than one character within it actually saw doors opening. When one relationship um, was lost in one way or another, it opened other doors. And I think anybody who's lived for any length of time knows that to be true. Uh, picking up on the adaptation theme, that's something which came through strongly with our survey as well. It was nice to see it um, today. Uh, we never defined... We, we, we didn't make a firm definition of what sex was in our survey. I mean, who are we to say what's sex to one person and is sex to somebody else? So questions around sexual intercourse, masturbation, fondling, petting, whatever, is, were kept distinct, uh, but we, we, we drew no distinctions between what is sex and intimacy because it's different things to different people. We have our personal lines where we draw these things. So we kept that very open in, in our particular survey. We're interested in broad sexual activity and, and intimacy and loving activity. Um, I think the other thing which wasn't really originally set up for this survey, remember Elsa, this survey's been running for about 12 years and there's only, only once that we put in a de this detailed sexual health questionnaire. Now it's become more apparent to me that as a resource we can begin to use that to break down generational barriers. We even see generational differences within Elsa from 50 to 90 people's attitudes change dramatically about same-sex relationships, um, the importance of sexuality with aging, the place it plays with retaining health. Um, and if we take that broader societal view, which has been, I think, overly prevalent, that sexual activity and intimacy is not of great importance to older people. And remember some recent surveys, NATSAL, a big sexual survey which has been running for over 30 years now, their, their wave two, they, they included people up to, I think it was 55, and they were saying that these questions won't be relevant to people who are older. So, you know, it's, it's both sides of the spectrum. Sort of, we're trying to move away now from this, this idea that uh, sex is something which you only do, obviously, in your, in your younger years, but to break down and to provide generalizable information, you know, true information which can then be used to break down barriers for understanding between generations. And that can feed into um, sex and relationship education at the school level, and I think that's probably a good thing. In terms of representing the diversity of sex or love or relationships, was, was there anything that you would further want to elaborate on? Uh, certainly from our survey, again, it comes back to this, this idea of variation and diversity. We found Yes, there were people who adapted in a positive fashion as they grew older for their 60s, 70s, and 80s and, and maintaining a sexual intimate relationship. But we also found people who were quite almost bitter in their remarks about the loss of their sexuality and reflecting either against loss of a partner or um, changing relationship dynamics or long-term, again, health conditions came through very consistently. 
if it's their own health or their partner's health, and they're feeling a loss of that sexual activity and that intimacy as well. They met barriers, again, ageist barriers around uh, sexuality and intimacy in later life, you know, does it matter? Um, so for them, uh, it, it wasn't always a positive, you know, I thought tonight was quite positive, today was quite positive in the sense of the, how it delivered and dealt with much of uh, changing relationships and intimacy as well. I guess there were, there were, there were clear important transitions as well. The, the, like I say, the menopause came across very importantly in our survey as well. And I think that's something which we're doing more qualitative research on now to understand um, how it affects women in different ways. And again, one of the consistent themes we saw from our research was that they perceived that it wasn't taken seriously by healthcare professionals. Jane? Yes. Um, a couple of things. Um, I wondered if having uh, sex and relationships education earlier in their lives would have altered the stories for any of the characters. Um, you might think about that. Well, <laughs> I, might ask you, I might ask you in a minute. Um, I did think that the most obvious one was Chris, who may not have felt the pressure to conform or may have been allowed to be more like Daniel and say, you know, um, I'm me. I don't have to have a, a label. I don't have to kind of resist. But, uh, and, uh, do you think, sorry to interrupt, but do you think that's sex and relationship education alone, or is it just also a, a sign of different times? In, in oh, yes, in I don't. Yes. Do with homosexuality, yes. Yes, definitely. I was saying just before we, uh, in, in the break, just before we sat down here, that I, it, this is very much a snapshot of a particular generation that grew up post-war um, and have gone through, have started in a very limited period where none of these things, they may have gone on, but they were never mentioned. So it's a very particular generation. When the current 30-year-olds, are they the millennials? Yes, well, when they're this, the age portrayed, the ages portrayed in Roundelay, it will be different. It will be a whole different set of issues, so you're about to do it again, then, in what, how many years? Um, but the, um, so I, I, I think it is temporal, this is kind of a snapshot. The, uh, the, other, the other things I wondered about, which were kind of touched on, was the increasing, no and you must have got this too from your survey, um, is uh, the increasing numbers of older people who are single. And I think the, the structure of, you know, La Ronde, which is Roundelay, kind of suggests that you go from, you know, relationship to relationship. Um, life out there is m more complex and more interesting than that in some ways. Um, and some people are ha happy to be single, are not seeking out, the, you know, the next partner. Uh, and I did wonder about the, perhaps, was it a little bit stereotypical when people... Uh, I think it's Adam, was it Adam who says at the beginning, he's there, um, uh, you know, I'll be, she's going to leave me, I'll be alone, as if it's the most terrible thing in the world. That, it would be interesting to explore that. And of course, alongside that, what about the rise in STIs amongst the older generation? 
you know, sexual health. If I can just jump in there, we, we put together the chief medical officer's report about STIs recently, um, and it has increased above the over 50s, but to keep it in context, it's about 5% of the burden in GUM clinics. So it's growing, but in, you know, in, in real terms, it's still a small burden. It shouldn't be ignored. That safe sex message, you could argue, is applicable to repartnering older people in later life, as it is to um, younger people as well. There's post-fertility years, so a message still needs to continue about safe sex. Yeah, sure. Indeed. Is this one on? Yes. I'd like to open it up for uh, questions with the audience. If anyone wants to put their hand up. Um, I'm very interested in your work, and I just wondered if you had ever done any of your findings um, or relevant have you sort of done other countries? Have you looked at France, for example, or anywhere else in Europe, or is it just a British thing where we have this thing about sex? You know, I mean, it's always been a taboo subject. I mean, I'm not just saying that because I went to a convent, but, I mean, it's always been frowned upon. Um, and I just wondered if you find a difference in attitudes um, in other schools in France or Germany or Belgium or anywhere else in Europe? Yes, other, um, I, I can't tell you much about France, but certainly the Netherlands um, is well known for having um, had sex and relationships education for um, a long period of time. Uh, sex is more openly talked about uh, in the community. They don't have the Daily Mail or its equivalent, or, it, or the, it's not as powerful as it is in, because that's the, one of the constraining factors here, as you will see. Um, uh, and they have much lower prevalence of um, uh, underage uh, sex, um, uh, teenage conceptions, and, and so on. So it's to do with openness and uh, it, sex not being a special topic. Here it's been a special topic. There have been reams written about that, haven't there? Why it's a special topic in Britain, you know, but they blame the Victorians. I'm not sure the Victorians are entirely to blame. Uh, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of factors contributing to why we, somehow we... C I do not personally understand it, why it is so difficult to talk about it. Um, or to teach about it. It's, te you know, I've taught it. I've te taught people to teach it. It's just, you know, it's just like teaching any other subject. You know, you learn, your, you learn what the, the topic is. You decide what you want your uh, participants, your class to learn, and you work out how to do it, and then you do it. And they learn it, and if they don't learn it, they tell you they haven't, and, you know, you start again. It's no different to maths, um, although it can be a lot more fun. What impact globalization and social media are having on other countries, we don't yet know. That, I think that, I don't know if you know anything about that, David. We haven't included that directly in our research, but it's a, a valid point. You would imagine the ramifications for this are quite huge, I mean, and changing attitudes and um, behaviors as well. So, um, but I mean, yeah, the, the UK, I, I agree, has historically dealt with this in a slightly odd way. Um, and I don't know why we struggle so much to deal with um, sexual health in an open way. Um, I, I hope that in a small part surveys such as ours and other, other groups just begins to open that dialogue more, bit by bit, 
I hope it will improve, but it's, I don't see it as be being a particularly quick process, particularly with certain mechanisms, as uh, mentioned newspapers um, around in the, in, the, in, the, um, in the mix as well. But anyway, that, that's another story. Thank you very much. Any other questions over here? about um, Holland, and I know they're very liberal in Holland, do you have the statistics to compare how their STIs and pregnancy rates, um, I'm talking about um, un underage and unmarried pregnancy rates, compared to ours? I don't have that to hand. They, they certainly will be out there. Mm. But the thing that um, we do know is that... Uh, England has always had uh, historically higher, higher rates of uh, underage mm. uh, conceptions, teenage conceptions, um, compared to the rest of Europe. We still are pretty low down the league table, but the rates have fallen um, progressively over the last, well, um, how long has teenage pregnancy strategy been going? About 15 years? It's more than 10 years. And over that period, since it got kind of properly started, the rates have been going down. And one of the components of, the, um, of that has been uh, having in areas with high, um, high, con high rates of uh, underage conceptions, teenage conceptions, it's been... Uh, the introduction of sex and relationships education in schools and also re-entry of young people into education uh, and also providing other service, easy access to uh, services outside school. Those things together have helped to bring the rates down. So we're doing, we're doing better, but we are still below other countries like Holland like uh, other areas of the, of the continent. Thank you. Um, any other questions? Uh, yeah, two questions, actually. Uh, one, uh, you mentioned the lack of uh, research on uh, female menopause. I mean, how, how much of that do you think is because we're a patriarchal society? And two, uh, the, in terms of child, uh, child education, sex education, four or five-year-olds, how much of that is focused because of uh, religion, both in this country and in my country, in America? Yeah, um, I'm not sure about the first point, um, how much of an impact that has making on healthcare for women as they undergo the menopausal transition. Um, all we could see from our survey that it was an issue, a key issue. They were saying they felt it was not, in their quotes, taken seriously in terms of a broader health issue, not just health, but also intimacy and sexual problems as well, which we were specifically picking up in this particular survey. I don't know, is, is it part of sex education in terms of that's the menopause and things like that? Are they even discussed in terms of, is it more is it purely from the biological perspective or is anything else comes into this as well? Yes, I mean, the thing that uh, secondary schools do the sort of mechanics of sex reasonably well. Um, so it will, in, in secondary schools, they will learn about the hormo hormonal control of reproduction, um, including the menopause. Uh, and I think that's even in the revised national curriculum science uh, to do with the hormonal control of it. Um, but 
um, I think for me it reinforces the fact that it shouldn't e sex and relationships should shouldn't end when you leave school. You need con constant opportunities to revisit. Um, no one learns something in one go. You need to learn to practice to have other opportunities. Certainly, we, with the internet, we've got plenty more opportunities to learn. Um, but I also think things like this, too, are part of opportunities to learn, you know, part of the, the lifelong learning. As to your, your question about um, resistance in primary schools, much of elementary education in England was provided by the church. So that still has a kind of, uh, although uh, schools are, at Church of England schools by and large are open to all children, they don't have to be members of the Church of England, um, there is still a sort of element of that, that you're spoiling children's, um, innocence by introducing that, rather than thinking that uh, an educated person would have access to this information in the same way that you learn anything else in a progressive way. You start with the simple things, you know. You start with number and you end up, you know, beyond calculus. Um, it's, it's exactly the same with sex and relationships education. So there are particular... Um, there are particular religious groups and factions who will hold out against introducing it in a compulsory way. But what the forum always advises schools to do where they get resistance from parents when they're trying to... Because all schools should have a policy, even if they don't teach much sex and relationships education, all schools should have a policy for it. Um, and when that's discussed in schools, parents will object. Parents can still withdraw their pupils from it. But if there's resistance, what we encourage uh, the school to do is to talk to the parents because quite often it's based on this, the, the point I made right at the beginning, that they don't really understand what it's about. They think that their four- and five-year-olds are going to be taught how to have sex. Uh, are going to be taught the mechanics, but in fact they're not. They're going to be taught what's, what they want to know at that age. Um, I was going to say, if, if you're interested in looking a bit more at what might be taught at different ages, the Sex Education Forum, which you can find very easily online, we have a website, um, we have a curriculum design tool which has questions that children might ask from the early years right the way through to post-16, which gives you a sense of how it progresses and the kinds of things that are relevant at different ages and around which the curriculum might be built. Thank you very much. I just want to thank our speakers. It's, it's all we have time for today. That was David Lee and Jane Lees discussing how the diversity of sex and relationships across the ages was seen in Roundelay. More on their work in relation to the Sex Education Forum and the English Longitudinal Study of Aging can be found through these search terms online. Roundelay runs from the 23rd of February to the 18th of March at the Southwark Playhouse, London. Tickets are available from the Southwark Playhouse website. 
Now, that brings us to the end of our Visible podcast. We hope that you have gained some fresh perspectives on what life, love and death means for those reaching later life. And in the case of Roundelay, maybe something also pertaining to sex. Please share with anyone you think that might gain something from this podcast. And I look forward to returning with the next installment very soon. Bye for now.